rung, and welcome to another edition of the Icon Showdown Podcast. I'm your trusty host, Enan Hennigan, and this, ladies and gentlemen, is the finale of season one of this edition of the Icon Showdown Podcast, where we have been breaking down um, which are the two most notable horror films in a given year, starting from 1988, moving through today's 2018. Um, we might have a little special at the end of the year after I've seen all the movies that come out here in uh, 2019 um, in the horror genre. But as of now, I can really only speak to um, the top two movies uh, up to 2018. So that's what we're going to deal with today. We are going to be breaking down A Quiet Place versus Hereditary, two movies that I absolutely adore. So we have a serious showdown cooking today. Um, as we do here at the Icon Showdown Podcast, we like to give a reason of why something is better than another, um, unlike, you know, the Academy or uh, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. They just, you know, do their voting and that's that. Well, here we explain why one deserves clout beyond another. Um, and we use a criterion for that, including breaking down the antagonist, the ensemble, the surviving characters, the setting, deeper meanings involved, as well as the fright factor. So as it turns out, um, it looks like Hereditary was released of January of that year. Quiet Place was released April of that year. So we're going to go ahead and start with Hereditary. Um, and talk about the antagonist. I guess it's Payman. I freaking love how scary this movie is. But the first time I saw it, I didn't really love that it turned out to be all Payman behind all this. Payman is one of the kings of hell, ultimately, who is pretty much body hopping through a, the lineage. Essentially, this is why it's called hereditary, because it's from the grandma, and then it hops to the child, um, who's awesome, and she's not in it enough, uh, who's played by Millie Shapiro as Charlie. Um, so what's interesting is that apparently Payman is behind Charlie ultimately eating a nut-filled chocolate cake, which gives her um, an allergic reaction, her throat's closing, and um, it leads to one of the most potent horror scenes in all of horror. We'll get to that when we get to the fright factor. But needless to say, she dies. We have this young child's death pretty much at the hand of her brother accidentally. Um, and then it would seem that Paimon jumps to the mother. So Paimon is now inhabiting the mother, um, played by Toni Collette, who is also fantastic in this role. She plays Annie Graham, uh, but she is so wracked with just sadness and uh, ultimately just bereavement based on the loss. Well, I guess her mother, who she didn't necessarily get along with, who we know dies at the top of the show. They go to her funeral at the beginning. Um, but then the untimely death of her daughter just completely overwhelms her, and Payman inhabits her spirit, pretty much starts just messing with her son and her husband to the point where they think she's just bonkers. Um, but in reality, she has Payman within... Um, but the interesting part is it turns out that uh, Payman doesn't want to be in a female body. Uh, this is what we learn at the end, which I find a little bizarre given that it was in the grandmother for as long as it was. Um, but ultimately, Payman's following those invisible spirits that we see there at the end. Um, we're kind of pulling the strings to ensure that his sister died and Payman was able to body hop. Uh, then the mother died and finally he's in a vessel that... Uh, everyone approves of, which happens to be uh, Peter, played by Alex Wolf, who's an interesting actor. He's really actually 
pretty fantastic in this. And then to round out the family, you do have Gabriel Byrne. Um, he's kind of the only one that at no point is an antagonist in this. So when we're talking about antagonists, it's the grandma to the daughter to the mom. And then at the end, it is officially in Peter. Um, what is its motivation? Apparently to satisfy its followers, which involves bringing them wealth, further fellowship, um, and ultimately a rejection of the Trinity in a more uh, mass massive way. Uh, beyond the motivations, the aesthetic, we don't actually see Payman himself. Payman is always inhabiting a human body. Uh, the way that his followers look, they're always just naked and they all kind of looked a little rotund, which is interesting. Maybe he's gluttonous figures. Uh, as it turns out, Payman is actually a former king. Um, and his powers include knowledge of the past and future events, clearing up doubts, making spirits appear, creating visions, acquiring and dismissing servant spirits, uh, reanimating the dead for several years, flight, which we do see a little bit of flight there with the decapitated Tony Collette, who kind of floats into the treehouse of sorts that kind of becomes this holy sanctuary for payment. Um, he can remain underwater indefinitely, which I find interesting, and his general abilities are to make all kinds of things, um, which we see most of these powers manifested in some way or another throughout the entirety of the film, um, depending on who he's in. Uh, beyond the aesthetic, then, of, uh, you know, the naked, bloated people and then just these uh, horrific looks when he is possessing someone, they kind of just go blank when Payman takes control of them. Um, before something horrific happens. Uh, the vocalization, um, you can you can notice a change in the voice of those that are affected by him in any moment, specifically Toni Collette. She really does well with kind of differentiating her character as the mom versus when she is Paimon. Um, and then, of course, in terms of originality, we've had uh, demons possessed before. I think this is done in a unique way. I, I loved it until the end because I do think... It really dealt with more about like grief and this was just a metaphor for grief but then it did turn out to be this you know king of hell uh which took away from my first viewing Rewatching it though i actually enjoyed it more um i loved i loved it the first time except for the end and i actually have grown to appreciate uh the end a little bit more on a second viewing and, and seeing how payment moves from one body to the next in a way i wasn't really cognizant of the first time i saw it uh so i do think payment is a original enough. We haven't seen this specific deity uh, who rules over one part of hell uh, manifested in a film before. So, I mean, you know, the devil, he's popped up before. We see sort of, you know, any sort of exorcism or possession movie, this, this sort of happens, but not a happy ending. So I will definitely give it original uh, in terms of Payman winning the day. This is an antagonist that does get what he wants. Um, let's pop over to The Quiet Place. We are going to talk about these sightless, super-hearing uh, beings from another planet, I'm assuming is what is going on here. Um, you have these creatures whose face is like uh, almost like a, a, a demigorgon in a way from Stranger Things, but it, it splits in a more like egg-cracky sort of way. Um, more like a flower almost. Well, actually not like a flower, more like a... Uh, Bloom and Onion might be the best way to put it. Uh, it's really interesting look, even though I will say that I did see a lot of 
inspiration from the creatures, the arachnids in Stranger Things, specifically the body. But it does have this impenetrable armor. The only time that it's vulnerable is when its base is kind of blooming, if you will. Um, and you get to see a little of the more the more fleshy, fleshy stuff in there. Um, the motivations, I, it seems like it wants to just take over the world. Uh, it's going to kill anything that makes any sound, including animals, so it's not biased. It's not going specifically for human. It's not clear whether or not it eats the human. I don't get any sense that it is eating them and it is just killing them um, for dominance. So I assume that this is just a, a predator dominant motivation. I don't see any sort of purpose beyond it's just wanting to destroy anything that makes a sound because it is irritating to the beast. So it just wants to live in peace, pretty much. Um, I don't think there's anything malevolent about it. I think it's just its biological imperative is to destroy that which makes it uncomfortable. Um, if we're talking about originality, as I mentioned in terms of the aesthetics, I feel like it's borrowing from Starship Troopers combined with the Stranger Things. But as a being that just hates sound, I love that. I feel like I haven't seen that before. Um, I love that the majority of the movie has no dialogue at all. Granted, I have talked to people who said they've watched it at home and fallen asleep watching it because they're not, you know, as enthralled when it is just sound effects that you're getting or uh, alien screeches, whatever that whatever that thing is. Um, but when I saw it in the theater, it felt like an event. It felt like a different type of movie to me. I really was just enthralled with it i was captured i loved it i loved it in the theater and i can't wait for the for the sequel and a lot of it has to do with the uniqueness of the antagonist so if we're going to go ahead and give pentagrams to these puppies out of four pentagrams i'm going to have to say that hereditary um is only going to get a three for me and it probably would get less if it wasn't done so uniquely and so effectively in terms of the production value itself um, and I'm gonna give it 3.5 and I'm only docking them that five points because it did seem like a combination of Stranger Things demigorgon face and arachnid body from Starship Troopers. Uh, let's move on to the ensembles and we'll talk about the ensemble here in Hereditary. The parents are serious A-listers. We have Tony Collette here and Gabriel Byrne. Both give amazing performances. I love Gabriel Byrne. I want to see him in more stuff. I miss him in more stuff uh, because I think he plays such a reassuring and troubled and dynamic father in this. I'm really rooting for him more than anyone else because certainly the, the kids are both annoying in their own way, even though that is their, their character. Um, it's harder to root for them, certainly. Alex Wolf's Peter is your typical teenager. And when we get to deeper meetings, we'll tap into that a little bit more. But he doesn't want anything to do with his parents. He doesn't want anything to do with responsibility. He's trying to latch on to those last moments um, where he can be irresponsible. Um, unfortunately, his mom is latching him uh, to his sister in every way, which ultimately leads to her death. Uh, Charlie's a really interesting actress. We've, I've never seen Millie Shapiro before. Um, very interesting look that she has. Uh, I think it was really suited for this part. You can see the sort of weird dynamic between her and her brother and how he just like, oh, you're a burden, you're an albatross around my neck. I don't want to take you to the party. I don't want to acknowledge that I have a family sort of thing. Um, I like the dynamic between Tony Collette and Gabriel Byrne's uh, parents. Uh, the wedded couple are 
interesting. There's a lot going on there. Their dynamic really evolves over the course of the film. You see them go from really supporting one another to him not really understanding the choices that she's making as she gets deeper and deeper into payments, sort of machinations. Um, he is kind of our only straight character, the only one that stays level-headed throughout the entirety of the film. And then you can't forget about Anne Dowd, too. She's a support group member who befriends Anne. She does have ulterior motives. She's not necessarily um, a, a good good friend, let's put it that way. Uh, she's great, though. Anne Dowd, you're going to see her in Handmaid's Tale. I think she was in um, The Leftovers as well in a great part. Um, she's terrific, and she's always one of these actresses that you don't really know whether or not they're good or bad. And they often do play these uh, morally ambiguous characters, or she often plays morally ambiguous in, in most of the roles she's given. Um, if we're to talk beyond that, you do have some smaller characters, um, including uh, people that work at the school. But I would say that this is really about the core family and ultimately the, the disintegration of the bonds there in a family based on you know, coming of age. This is a coming of age horror film in a weird way. Um, and just a film about the dynamic most specifically between a mother and her son, um, which takes up the majority of the last two thirds of the film, I think really focuses on those two's relationship and how hard it is, um, especially when um, your progeny has done something that is really hard to forgive, how you get past that, how you believe in blood, and before moving on, I just wanted to mention that Toni Collette's character is a miniaturist, which means she makes these small displays that are representative of moments in her life, like dioramas, if you will, but really thought out ones. Um, and at one point she does make a diorama of the uh, ultimate death of her daughter, which really pisses off the husband. It's, it's one of the most powerful emotional dramatic scenes in the film. Um, the interpersonal dynamics, I feel like, are believable. I did buy the romance between the, the parents. And as a whole, uh, I, I like this ensemble. I thought it was well cast. And both of the child actors really, really surprised me with their roles. Uh, I liked it across the board. Um, if you're to talk a little bit about the acting ability, you can't really say anything negative about it, if I'm honest with you. Granted, there is no diversity, no sort of racial or uh, gender sex issues uh, really pop up within it. Um, okay, let's pop over to the Quiet Places Ensemble. All right, so we have Jim from The Office as our patriarch, trying to ensure that his family doesn't make a peep. Because if they do, the monster's gonna find them. We got a great opening sequence where his son, Cade, wants to play with a NASA rocket toy um and he like he, he has to tell him no wordlessly and it's kind of this almost really fatherly sweet moment where the kid seems to understand but then unfortunately uh his daughter gives the kid back the toy as they're walking away and uh Cade picks up the batteries of course i'm sure most of you know what happens then pops the battery is in and Snatch! Uh, the kid is dead. So they've lost their youngest son. We meet them later when Emily Blunt, who's Evelyn Abbott, the mother, is pregnant. So there's a new beginning. We have a little bit of hope again there. 
We have two child actors that I wasn't super familiar with. I think Noah Jupe as Marcus was really good. I, I feel like I've seen him in other stuff. I'm trying to see. Uh, he will be in A Quiet Place too. Uh, he's in Penny Dreadful as well. Um, and he was in Downton Abbey. Uh, so yeah, I, I had recognized that kid before, and I think he did a great job in this. He really shines toward the latter half of the film. And then you have uh, uh, Millicent Simmons, who plays Reagan, who's actually a deaf actress herself, which I, I find amazing. I mean, why not cast somebody that will understand where this character is coming from in that way? And she does a great job of it. She's uh, she's a lot of fun to watch, and I think terrifying um, to watch in, in the moments that she is in peril. So I believe I believe the terror that's within her. Um, in a way, I kind of maybe wanted a little bit more from Noah. Uh, and of course, it is a little hard to get past John Krasinski as Jim and a lot of people have told me yeah I just can't get into this movie because of that because it is Jim he directed it though and I think it's it's well directed it's it's well structured well written granted there's not a lot of dialogue at all really with the exception of the waterfall scene um, where you do have this father-son moment where they kind of go over the fact that the daughter Reagan is really the one that's responsible for the youngest son's death when she gave him back the toy and kind of this really sweet moment like you still love her right and he's like of course I do I, I like the father-son dynamic there was a more complex dynamic between the father and daughter especially because you know she, she's never heard her parents voice um, and then at the end it really drives home the relationship between the mother and the daughter because as I'm sure you're aware, uh, John Krasinski's character, Lee, does end up sacrificing himself to save his kids. Um, so it's really down to those two. While uh, Noah, who plays Marcus, is in the basement with the newborn child, which is which is just great element, knowing you can't really make a newborn be quiet. And the way they do that is by putting it in a box, pretty much, with a little oxygen mask on. Uh, but you can still hear a little bit. It was still audible. So I think the ensemble was great. I think the acting ability was really good. I don't think it's on par with Hereditary. I love Emily Blunt. Oh my gosh. Edge of Tomorrow. She's so good in there. That's just such a great movie. This, I think she is really good. And when we talk about my scariest scene, it involves her. I think she does well. I'm a little distracted by the fact that they're married in real life. So there obviously was that chemistry. But... It, sometimes when you have these very, very recognizable actors in something like this that I think would be more effective if it was lesser known, still strong actors, I think it could have been a better film. Granted, it was Krasinski's love child, so you, you can't really blame him too much for wanting to be in something that was as, as powerful as this was, and I do look forward to that sequel. Um, beyond that, diversity, again, I don't think we have any people of color. They've all been eaten. Um, or not eaten, rather, just destroyed. Shut up is probably the best way to put it. Um, and really the only other ensemble character of note is the crazy guy in the woods who's lost his wife, and he's essentially committing suicide by moaning and crying. And what's weird is he seems to want to get um, uh, Lee and Marcus killed with him. Um, he's not a sympathetic character, even though he has lost his wife. So, uh, yeah, he's he's kind of a villain in a way. He could have been mentioned in the antagonist himself because he's bringing attention um, to them when uh, there's really no reason to, other than he's just stricken with grief and maybe not thinking straight. 
Um, let's go ahead and pentagram these puppies up. Terms in the ensemble, I'm going to have to give Hereditary a four, and I'm going to give uh, Quiet Place a 3.5 again. All right, that's fair. Um, okay, moving on, let's talk about the surviving characters. In Hereditary, we only have the sun living there at the end. Everybody else is toast. Literally, Gabriel Byrne becomes toast. The father, Steve Graham, um, ignites on fire when she, uh, when she throws the book into the fire. So that was kind of one of the lesser powerful deaths, I guess, if you will. Because when you're talking about Tony Collette's death, oh my goodness. We'll get to that, though, in the Fright Factor. Um, so ultimately, we have uh, Peter throw himself out the window so he doesn't have to see his mom die, as she does. Uh, and then he, of course, sees her floating body go up to the treehouse. He follows up there, and there's this little shrine, this little model, if you will, or statue of payment with the little crown on and suddenly there are all the spirits the naked bloated spirits around him that are crowning him saying it's all good now you're officially payment don't worry about anything now that your family's dead um i think he didn't really have a determination to survive as a surviving character because he did throw himself out the window he doesn't seem happy about the fact that he's payment there at the end i find it iconic that you have a surviving character that ultimately becomes the new big bad. I do like that. Um, but as a whole, we had no consistent final character throughout. Um, we do kind of latch on to him more in the third act, but I don't think people are necessarily going to remember all the stuff that he went through, even though it is a very powerful film and I think it's maybe so horrific that people could erase a lot of what happens to him, specifically the scene in the school where he's getting possessed by Payman, who's kind of imitating what happened to the sister and just bashing his head into the desk. And he just screams bloody murder in the classroom. He's got one of his classmates like filming it, of course, while the rest of them are just like staring in disbelief. And the teacher's reaction to that is so good, too. Uh, so I do think he's a really interesting final character. Do I find him an iconic final character? Not as much because he does become the darkness. Um, so that that's maybe that's going to ding in a little bit when we get to the pentagrams. In terms of the quiet place, the only one we lose beyond the kid at the beginning is John Krasinski. In theory, uh, knowing that there is a quiet place too, let's go ahead and assume that Emily Blunt lives with her daughter who now has the knowledge that her, um, the feedback that comes from her hearing aid when she uh, puts it up too high is deadly to these creatures, um, at least incapacitates them long enough to get a shot in. We do see at the end there at least four to five of these creatures huddling toward them um, within the barn or within the basement. And you can assume it's going to be pretty hard to take on all five, but... Given that there's a sequel, I think I think they're all going to live. Because you got the kid in the underground hiding space with his infant uh, brother as well. So I'm wondering how far they move into the future if this kid is old enough to be fighting these big bads himself. Iconic? Yes. I would only say Emily Blunt's character is super iconic because of uh, the scene where she gives birth silently. Because... She can't make a peep despite the contractions, despite the pain. She's able to survive and save her kid because she's able to give a peepless 
birth. You got to give her that. That is that's a super iconic moment um, without question. And I and I feel like having a uh, her daughter, the, the deaf character, also be there with her at the end, and the one that kind of figures it out. She has an iconic nature to herself as well. I feel like they're both empowered. Because frankly, you do have the two male characters who are vulnerable in a way. Uh, the females aren't. The females are the ones fighting at the end um, while he kind of hides in the basement with his little baby bro. So if we're going to give uh, pentagrams out for our surviving characters, I have to say Payman's only earning a 2.5 for me. And I'm going to go ahead and give a solid 3 to our Women of Quiet Place. It probably deserves a 3.5. Um, but just the fact that they're a duo and... Uh, there's, there's no, I don't know. I don't know who I'd want to follow more moving into the next movie, the mother or the daughter. I would, I would like to know who, who I'm going to follow more. I don't feel like there is that super iconia that I want in it. That's why I'm going to just give it a three. Um, if we move on to the setting in Hereditary, we predominantly stay in their fairly nice house. Um, it's kind of a reverse haunted house in that the people are haunted. We have seen that before, of course. Uh, I do like the scenes in the school. There's some horrific things that go down in the school, whether it's the bird that flies into the window when Charlie's still alive, and then she goes out and cuts the bird's head off, um, which obviously is foreshadowing to what happens to her, what happens to her mom as well. Um, beyond that, we do get the scenes at the funeral, which are really affecting. I love this director, Ari Aster. Uh, has some beautiful shots and some beautiful compositions that are worth seeing it for alone, especially if you're a film junkie. You're going to love the way that he depicts otherwise banal places. Um, and then this year he released Midsommar, uh, which is in a very unique location, and he does even more more profound things with the camera, if you ask me. Um, so beyond the setting, I think there is an ambient set. I think we do see it... A de-evolution, um, a degrading of brightness and hope and love. Certainly, at the beginning, she's building sets that aren't as morose as she does later. Her little miniature sets, rather. The most profound spot is probably the treehouse that becomes sort of like a temple at the end. I'm going to give that some bonus props. Uh, but other than that, I feel like the settings are fairly standard. There's not a lot unique going on with the settings. They're done well. They're used well. Great utilization of space. We're not getting, like, next-level settings. Granted, this is a film about a family, so it does make sense that it was set there, and it is shot beautifully, especially the scenes around the fire. Um, but simply because that treehouse is so interesting, and that's where the whole film kind of starts and ends on, I'm going to still give it a solid three. And I shouldn't be giving it a grade before I talk about The Quiet Place, which is set on a farm. Um, we got corn outside. They are able to self-sustain. I think it's really cool that they alert each other with the red Christmas lights if there is danger. We also go to the waterfall where they're able to talk a little more freely because the sound of the rushing water is able to drown out their voices and they're not in imminent danger uh, constantly when talking. Um, beyond that, I love the top of the show too where they go to the... The store, the like small town store to get some supplies, to get some pharmaceuticals, um, and then just walking the path where they actually don't walk as a cluster and have pretty much, I would say, probably maybe 10 feet between each of them as they walk in a line. I love this. I love how well it is thought out and how um, they're mitigating their liability, right? They're making sure that the majority would live if there is an incident, if one of them does fall or one of them does activate a toy rocket. Uh, 
So uh, they do move around a lot, but I think the places that we do go are interesting enough and unique enough that I really like this setting and I'm probably going to have to give it a 3.5 because um, it is slightly more unique and slightly more compelling, specifically the scenes in the basement, the like bunker hiding space that they have uh, where, where they pretty much cover themselves up with a mattress to drown out the noise. I think it's, it's, it's built into the bottom of the barn. Um, and then, of course, the bathroom scene with Emily Blunt's mother's character while she's giving birth. Awesome. Awesome bathroom shot. Uh, so I'm going to give it a 3.5. Um, let's go on to deeper meanings. In Hereditary, I do think it's dealing specifically with what the title talks about and what it means to have kids, to um, pass on all of your flaws and genetic foibles to them and still love them despite seeing your own flaws reflected. Um, the sort of just turmoil that a uh, small nuclear family, atop the criticism of like humans trying to control their destiny, right? Ultimately, we do realize, as they talk about in English class within it, I'm in English class where they talk about how Pericles is given all these warning signs, but ultimately he's, he's fated, he's destined to lose in the same way we have these characters. There is a lot of interplay um, between the, the themes uh, that we hear them talk about in his English class to what actually happens in the film. So I did appreciate the literary level that this film goes to. And beyond that, I think it's also dealing with like she wanting to have, the mother specifically wanting to have control and be godlike in her design of these miniatures. She's trying to have a control that she can't because her kids aren't relating with her as much as she wants them to. Uh, the, the scene at the dinner table where she kind of breaks down and says, you're always smirking at me or you're always sneering at me rather with that face, that face on your face. It's such a great scene, such a great monologue. Um, you got you got the kid just with the single tear coming down. It's really powerful. I remember, I think I even had a single tear coming down when I saw that in the theater itself. It really is a great scene. Uh, probably Colette's highlight of the entire movie is right there at the dinner table where she just tells him, I'm never going to be able to forgive you. What you've done, even though it was an accident, is how, how can I ever forget the fact that you are why my daughter's dead? So um, I, I think it deals with just the inability to forgive some things and that you can't get over everything and there's always going to be such traumatic, horrific things that stick with you. Just that stick factor of the worst of the worst, which is the worst of the worst when you see what happens to the little girl. Um, in terms of the commentary on the times, you could say the, the evolution of the nuclear family ultimately and how they're not connecting anymore. The kids are always on the phones. Um, the girl, maybe, Charlie is not as uh, attended to as she should be, certainly by her brother who's you know, smoking weed while she is inhaling that chocolate cake not realizing there's nuts in it i do find it interesting that she was so into chocolate she loved chocolate she's always eating chocolate bars she wasn't like fat by any means but she was like the sugar hound i think this will have a lasting impact for those that see it i know maybe those who were questioning whether or not they want to have kids or waffling on it this is not a movie that's gonna like encourage you to have kids i would say um for multiple reasons so I think in that sense, it's really powerful. It's lasting. You remember some of these shots, some of these scenes, some of these characters in a way you don't with most films. 
Um, and in terms of my own personal connection with it, I remember seeing it in the theater. There wasn't a lot of people there, and it went opening weekend. Uh, but I do feel like Ari Aster, this, this writer-director, is coming up. I think this is where he really proved himself to the world that he's bringing a new eye to horror, a new sensibility, a deeper um, meaning um, that we haven't seen for a bit with, with some really rich characters touching on, in this one, family life, uh, dissolving family, and in Midsummer, you'll see him deal with burgeoning romance and, and a relationship that goes asunder. Um, we're going to talk about the deeper meanings in A Quiet Place. I think there actually is some overlap going on between these two. I think it does deal with how one has to communicate with their loved ones in a different way now in this digital era and that you like talking has almost become rare to actually speak with someone have profound conversations because this world has become muted in a way between text messages and emails we don't really connect in a way we used to and the effect of that on a family. And ultimately you have the, the kid who wants to hear, who wants to play, who wants to enjoy his surroundings, who was just snatched up by this. I think it is kind of like, it's touching on just how this digital era might be swallowing kids alive um, in, in the way that we see Cade get pretty much snarfed up um, by one of these arachnid demogorgon things um beyond that in terms of deeper meanings i do think it has a lasting impact i think a lot of people really like that this played with senses in a way movies usually don't um like i said when i saw it in the theater i really feel like it was like an event it was a different sort of movie experience for me which i really appreciated uh and i'll, I'll never there, there are so few movies where i i will always remember what it felt like to see them and i feel like this is one of them. I was so impressed with it. It hit in April of that year, and I was like, oh, damn. If this is how the rest of the year is going to be in horror, we are in for a treat. Um, so in terms of pentagrams, I'm going to go ahead and, for deeper meaning, give a four to Hereditary, because I think that's maybe the best part about it is the deeper meanings going on there. And I'm going to give a three to uh, Quiet Place. Uh, in terms of Fright Factor, Hereditary scared me more the first time I saw it until the end. I preferred that it be more about actual mental illness and her going bonkers over the loss of her daughter than the fact that there's a demon that is there. That loses me in Scare Factor because I don't necessarily believe in demons. I don't, not necessarily I don't believe in demons. Um, so that loses me. I thought it was still effective. I still really enjoyed it as a whole. Um, the kill counts, you got Gabriel Byrne, you got, oh, Tony Collette. That's the most quality kill. Ultimately, she is uh, using some sort of, like, maybe a wire, I'm assuming, and she's able to, like, saw off her own head while she's hanging from the rafters. Um, granted, we have... Peter jump out the window before we actually see it go all the way through her neck, but we do hear the thud of her falling. Really effective, the way that her arms go so fast there at the end, super creepy. Really, really, really uh, a quality kill, if you will, even though it's a pseudo-suicide, despite it is Paymon that's doing it to her. Um, the music and sound design in this and Quiet Place are awesome, great music. Um, and then I th and their their music I think is actually recognizable. Where if somebody played it without context, it'd be like, oh shit, that is from Hereditary. That is from Quiet Place. I gotta give the sound design probably even more in Quiet Place because sound design is so key to that movie. But in Hereditary, very very awesome, especially the ending 
theme music uh, score is, is fantastic. Um, and then the scariest scene for me, I guess, would have to be when our poor Charlie gets her head decapitated uh, when her brother veers away from hitting a dog and she's trying desperately to gasp for air out the window and she hits a telephone pole um, or an electricity pole. Her head is lopped off by a pole of sorts and subsequently he just drives home, goes to bed, leaving her decapitated body in the back seat, leaving the head on the ground, leaving his parents to just find this body. Uh, without having warned them and then we get a quick cut to just her head on the street covered in ants really airy really 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 creepy really scary honestly for me it was this is a real sort of thing this is before we know there's demons involved and it's just like ugh, reality taking you down um in terms of quiet places fright factor I was I was scared. Uh, I do believe more in like a potential invading species over ghosts or demons or kings of hell, like is in Hereditary. So I will say, if you look at this more like an alien movie, um, it is scary. Like you have War of the Worlds happening here in a more intimate way uh, that I really dug, and I was sufficiently scared throughout it. It was nice that there's no just nonsense talk. Um, the moments that are heartfelt, like when um, the parents are able to use headphones to listen to the, to the same Neil Diamond song together. I, I like that. I thought that was a really good contrast to the constant pressure that they face by not making a peep. Um, quality kills, I guess. I think the kid at the beginning, their, their youngest son, getting snatched up so, so quickly. So just... Out of, out of nowhere, I, I felt like that was probably the most freaky and just the, the face on the daughter specifically realizing, oh crap, I didn't realize that giving him that toy would lead to his death. And then, of course, Emily Blunt's horror having lost or knowing even before he gets snatched up, knowing that she's about to lose a child, seeing him there enjoying himself with the toy before um, death swings around. And... Beyond that, I will say that I think the scariest scenes involve Emily Blunt's character um, when she steps on the nail on the stairs and she's got to like squelch that scream, but she can't help it. And then, of course, we have our critter come down there and she has to hide, not breathe. And that ultimately leads to her going up to the bathroom where she starts to go into labor and she's literally just like bleeding into the tub trying to not make a sound even though the thing is right there it is a really effective moment um in terms of creature feature i i, I found it super scary the first time uh, knowing what to expect of course the second time is going to be a little muted but uh it's still it's still worth it worth another look and i know i will watch both of these films again without a question so in terms of the fright factor for hereditary i'm going to give it a three and actually i'm going to give it a 3.5 and i'm going to give a quiet place also a 3.5 okay uh shoot the bell has not rung yet despite the fact that all the scores are in ah silly me for the third time doing this solo uh has a tie of course, they both earned 20 points, or 20 pentagrams, rather. So it is going to have to come down to my preference. I know at the top I said we're doing this objectively, but they are both 
equally good, if I'm honest with you. And the only reason that I'm going to award Hereditary as the most iconic of the year is because it's not going to have a sequel. It is its own entity. Who knows if A Quiet Place 2 ruins the power of the first one. So just for the fact that Hereditary lives on its own, as its own beast, as its own demon, rather, I'm going to have to say... Hereditary is the most iconic mainstream horror of 2018. The bell has rung in that department. All right, people, I want to thank you for listening all month here to the Icon Showdown podcast. With all these horror movies, I've watched 62 horror movies in 31 days. That is insane. That's, I mean, as someone who used to manage video stores, this is still probably the most films I've ever watched in a um, particular amount of time. So I'm going to go ahead and pat myself on the back for that one. Uh, But it's been a lot of fun. And and I'll tell you what, I am going to follow up before the year ends with my uh, favorite two horror films of 2019. And we'll give those puppies a showdown uh, before the new year rings in. Beyond that, if you do want to support this podcast, please check out my media hub at parasociable.com. There you'll find comedy horror shorts that I've been in and produced and wrote, um, as well as my novel about the burgeoning dream recording industry is there called Company Dreamer. And of course, uh, the third album um, from my band Computactyl uh, with Josh Kirkland has been released, so you can find that anywhere music is sold. Um, So again, thank you all, Um, and as they say in the business, the bell has rung.